Hey everybody, welcome to SoDoc, It's Cancer, a podcast to understand cancer, how it happens, how it's treated, how we arrive at a diagnosis and at a prognosis, cancer's impact upon a person's quality of life, and how to move forward in life after a cancer diagnosis. The show airs monthly and we welcome your engagement and feedback. It's three cancer specialists and a graphic design artist discussing cancer. So I'd like to introduce our other hosts. Uh, first, I'll start with uh, Peter Schlegel. It's an honor to participate in this podcast. All right, and next is Mike Reardon. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, in the lead-in, I was described as a graphic design artist, which just means that I have no medical background. I am here to keep the doctors honest. I am here as the everyman. Or I wanted to be listed as schmo, but Paul <laughs> overrode me on that. But that's my job. You're the normal guy. And, I'm the normal and guy. Courtney. Courtney Koch, MD. I'm Courtney Koch, radiation oncologist. Glad to be here. Um, I um, live down the street from my buddies Michael and Paul and on the other side of the country from Peter. So I treat cancer patients with radiation. Been doing this for 25 years. And then I'm Paul Roach. I'm a surgical oncologist. Um, and, uh, and I was the one to convince these guys to join us. All right, great. Now, one thing I'd, I'd like to do just to uh, get things rolling is if each guy would just tell a little bit about yourselves, you know, just so people listening can know who's talking to them. So, uh, Courtney, since you're on the mic, would you mind just saying just a little bit about, uh, you know, yourself, where you grew up and, and where you went to school and how you got interested in medicine and, and in cancer? So I... Born in London, grew up in Jamaica, on a farm in Jamaica. We'll talk about that sometime. That's all so normal, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I went to school in, uh, here in Chicago, University of Chicago, and then at Wash U. That's where I did my medical school training. Got involved in radiation oncology, as with a lot of things in life. Depends on mentorship. I had some excellent teachers who... Uh, invited me to spend some time with them um, when I was in medical school, explore the field of, of oncology, specifically radiation oncology. Felt as if it was something that I could do and uh, decided to pursue it and it's, I've never looked back. It's um, something that I, I take great pride in to be able to be there for patients at very vulnerable stages of their life. Not everybody can do it, but it's, it's an honor to be here for, for my patients. And I live in Chicago with my wife and, and two kids. All right, all right. Pete, you're up. Yeah, I have a pretty typical story. I uh, grew up in the Midwest in the suburbs of uh, Chicago, went to a Big Ten college, went to Rush Medical College, and went out to Utah to become a doctor. And while I was at University of Utah on the oncology ward, I, I really fell in love with with leukemia management and taking care of people with severe illness associated with cancer. And uh, that led to a, a fellowship in hematology, which is a study of blood and, and cancer, the study of cancer. And uh, that's uh, basically how I became um, what I am. And over the last 20 years, I've been practicing mainly in Washington State and the Pacific Northwest. I've been mainly a, a, a community private practice physician working at a major medical center um, 
have taken care of uh, all sorts of cancer, from lung cancer to brain cancer to pancreatic cancer, um, taking care of a lot of blood disorders, anemia, bleeding disorders, clotting, and, and so forth. Um, at this point in my career, I've changed to the Veterans uh, Hospital Medical Center to take care of of uh, our prior servicemen who have been afflicted with, with cancer and blood disorders. Again, excited to, to be here today and to talk uh, a little bit about medical oncology and what we, we um, basically what our world is like. Awesome, awesome. And Mike, how did an honest guy like you get involved with this group of toughs over here? How, how do you get dragged into this? Because I know you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how that happened. Uh, right, as I already said, I, you know, completely not. You know, it, it's a really tough crowd to follow all those qualifications. And then there's me, has nothing to do with this. I'm not a cancer patient. I'm not a cancer doctor. I, I haven't even watched a, a doctor house or <laughs> Dr. Marcus Welby, MD, in a long time. None of that. I got nothing except, again, just to be the voice uh, of, of the plain man. Plain man That's of the people. Perfect. That's why, Paul. That's why you chose me. That is awesome. That is awesome. And we love you for it. All right. Uh, and my name is Paul Roach. I grew up in Oak Park. Uh, I went to high school with Mike here. I went to med school with Pete at Rush. Uh, I live right down the, the road from Courtney. Um, I went to um, University of California for my internship and University of Maryland for my residency in general surgery and University of Chicago for my fellowship in surgical oncology. And uh, I, I work in the VA as well, and I, I love taking care of my VA patients. All right, so let's move on. We'll move on to the, uh, the, the next section. We don't have any guests today. I figured it's early in the program to start inviting people, but once we get our own stride going, we can start inviting guests. But uh, today we'll start off with case of the day. And I thought I'd start off this month and I saw two of these uh, patients as new consults last week, and I, I personally don't get to see too many of them ordinarily, so I thought it was a sign that maybe this is the first disease process that we discuss as a group. Um, it was esophageal cancer. Uh, so what I'll present now is a fictitious case, just sort of a uh, made-up one, intended to exemplify the situation. So let's say I have a 59-year-old male uh, no known past medical history, uh, which frequently means that they maybe don't see the doctor too much. And he's got progressive difficulty swallowing for about two months, really just to solids, um, meat or chicken kind of stick in his chest. And so he's only been drinking liquids and having semi-solids like pudding or things like that. And he's had at least a 10 pound weight loss comes to the doctor with that. He smokes about a pack and a half a day and maybe has one to three drinks per day. So since it's a cancer podcast, you know, uh, Pete or Courtney or Mike, what would be your, your guess on what this guy's differential is? is, is uh, what options? What's a differential, Paul? Oh, yeah. That's when we try to figure <laughs> out, all right, of the various illnesses that a person could have, which ones do you think it could potentially be? Oh, I see, because he smokes and he, he drinks and he's got an age thing. and He's got food okay, sticking so. in his chest, yeah. Well, there's a variety of things it could be, but it could be esophageal cancer, maybe lung cancer, sort of sticking into the esophagus. There's other esophageal diseases, which we'll skip. 
But let's just go with. Uh, well, wait. Uh, let, let me stop you there because I only know, you know. <laughs> again, I know nothing. But if I'm if I'm this guy and I'm having a hard time eating, I I'm eating a, a box of Tums every day. Yes. Right? Yeah. I, I mean I'm I'm thinking I've got I'm I'm not I've, I probably wouldn't even come see you first. I probably went to see my regular doc, and I'm thinking I've got you know, a, uh, like an eating disorder or what do you call it? A gastro. Like, I don't know something. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, Pete, how many times do you see somebody where they've been kind of treating themselves, thinking it was something normal when it was actually... Oh, yeah, I think the point of the, the question is how they even wound up in your office and how we're even talking about a differential. How does a guy in the street who's saying, hmm, I've had a little difficulty swallowing and sure they're taking some Pepsi or maybe they think they had a little food poisoning or they've been, you know, just it's not a big deal and... And then all of a sudden they're not swallowing chicken. They, they go get their favorite chicken and they have a, a bite of chicken breast and they get stuck and they're gagging as a pretty terrible and friend looks at them and say, what the hell is going on? And uh, you say, you need to get checked out. So the typical person would call their uh, uh, primary care doc and say, you know, I kind of have some problems swallowing. Can you check me out? And the primary care doctor would say, ask him questions. Have you lost any weight? Do you see any blood? Does it hurt right now? Are there certain things? And, and anyway, the long and short is they isolate the symptoms to your esophagus. And, and from there, the primary care doctor, or whether it's an urgent care doctor, ER doctor, uh, a friend who's a surgeon who they happen to know, they, they get referred on to generally a GI doc to get that checked out that you can do barium swallows as well, but generally they uh, want to do a scope and the GI doctors are more than happy to stick a scope down and lo and behold, boom, there it is. Halfway down, there, there's cancer. Now, having said that, nine out of 10 times they, they, they do this, they find that there's an ulcer in there or there's some sort of scar tissue, they have a infection, something like that, but, um, time, uh, but there's often more problems than say a cancer and the pathology the, uh, the GI doc does the, the biopsy and says wow there's something bad there I do some biopsies and they wind up talking to the the patient afterwards and chances are the, the patient won't even remember because they're recovering from their anesthesia but their spouse or driver said well they found something and you know, wow uh, we'll give you a call in a couple of days and you know, a couple of days later, they get a call from the doc and say, you know, it doesn't look good. It looks like cancer. Uh, the pathologist read it as cancer. And uh, from there, then they call up and say, well, we got to get you into the world of, of cancer. And whether they call up a medical oncologist or a, a surgical oncologist, um, that's kind of when the ball gets rolling. It's, um, but basically, uh, we have to start somewhere and there's some suspicious symptom that draws the attention of the medical community and that's basically what starts uh, things rolling. Uh, 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 but, but you a know, pretty Paul, critical step there. I think it could also, you know, given the, this patient's history, also be a head and neck cancer. would present with the similar symptoms of the patient with the smoking history that has um, difficulty swallowing or dysphagia or pain on swallowing or dynophagia. Right. I got to cut it, in. What, what's dysphagia? No. Difficulty swallowing. Oh, um, okay. 
um, would be a dysphagia or a dynophagia, which would be pain on swallowing. Um, or it could be a large um, lung cancer that's pressing um, in the center part of the chest. So I think that those may also be possibilities. And um, as Peter said, that you know they would see their primary care physician and they would um, then look at their symptoms and refer them for the proper testing to get an idea of what that's where things will lead to. So I'm thinking. So was the original like, question, Paul? What, like, are, you want these two guys to guess? I'm ready to guess. I think right. I know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. But <laughs> the, the question was meant to actually bring up the discussion that we just had. The exact. Oh, I knew right. they I are. I knew you like, all yeah. already knew. But you know, kind of like <laughs> step one. You know, a person has some sort of symptom which is 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 pretty way out of ordinary. You know, how often is food sticking in your chest? Now, if it is sticking in your chest, that doesn't mean it's cancer. There's other things like esophageal webs or ulcers or uh, other problems that can happen that cause it uh, and that are a lot less, you know, scary than, than a cancer. But what we're talking about is when it is. Um, so step one is you figure something is serious enough to go to your primary care doctor or if it's stuck in your chest and you're uncomfortable you might go straight to the ER. And then step two I think would be one manner of physician or another brings you to the attention of a GI doc and they do typically a scope like Pete said and you swallow this fiber optic uh, tube that has a, a little video uh, cable on it and you can see everything on the TV screen. And it shows in the middle of your food pipe uh, a lot of distortion and altered anatomy. And then they'll take a little piece of it for analysis down in the lab. A couple days later, the laboratory comes back with the report, yeah, this is cancer. Then the next step is you have to work it up and figure out is this cancer local to the food pipe, to the esophagus, or has it begun to move outside of that area? That's called a, a staging workup, and it involves. Just out of curiosity, how does that how does how does that happen? What kind of test do I have to have if that's like? What am I in for? If how, how do they test for that, Paul? I think the first couple things you would do would be one: it'd be a CAT scan where you know it's a series of it's like a everyone i think is aware of what a cat scan is nowadays where it's just a series of x-rays that goes through your body and you can look at every 2.5 centimeter slice of your body in all three dimensions and so you can get a really good picture of your insides with this cat scan another thing that you would get is called a pet scan so cat and pet. I don't know how these names came this way, but a PET scan is a functional image. A CAT scan is, a, is an anatomic image. The, the PET scan looks for areas that are really metabolically active, and you can overlay that on the CAT scan. And so if there's a, a blob on the CAT scan, the little area that doesn't look quite right, and it's metabolically very active, you start to really worry that that could be part of a tumor. 
You may also do okay. other studies like a, it's another version of a EGD, the, the scope, where instead of just looking with light, they put an ultrasound probe down your food pipe and it uses something like sonar to look in the immediate area around the esophagus and it can tell how thick the tumor is and it can tell if there's things in the immediate area that are abnormal. So that's a lot of workup, it's a lot of money, um, it's a lot of insurance money typically. Uh, it means that if you're not in a affluent nation, you're not really gonna get that kind of workup. But uh, Pete and Courtney, how'd I do on describing that? You did great. Oh, I think, you. Um, you know, you, you just, <laughs> you earned your medical school degree right there, Paul. <laughs> no, I think, um, yeah, that's a staging workup, and that, that is such an important part of our care um, and standards of care, because that is how, for example, we are able to then analyze patients and make sure that how we're treating patients is in keeping with all the studies and protocols because if all patients are getting the same type of workup, we can then put patients into stages and decide how to treat the patient based on the stage that they're in. Oh, is this the, is this the uh, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four thing that you always hear about? Exactly. You yeah. got it. So one is your early stage, four is really bad, right? Or, or have I got that backwards? Or no, you got it right. <laughs> no, I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent uh, way of looking at it. Um, when I, as a medical oncologist, um, I'm going to look at it and, and be very objective to say what stage you have, but as a human being who's experiencing this illness, your, your first question is, you know, how bad is it, doc? You know, what, what can we do? And the doctor, the, the medical uh, team, the cancer team needs to know what's realistic and the stage determines the spread and then therefore the prognosis. If it's a little lump at stage one, we just call up our friendly surgeon, Dr. Roach, and get scheduled for surgery. If it's stage four, if the cat's out of the bag, it's spread, the prognosis isn't so good. We, we may have treatments available, but the bottom line is the cat's out of the bag, it's incurable, we can slow it down. Stage two and three is uh, locally advanced and it gets pretty complicated to say, well, how deep it is, did it involve lymph nodes? Um, and so we get into a minutia there. But uh, the, the second question that the patient will generally have after is, you know, what kind of cancer, is this cancer? Next one is, you know, what can we do about it? And the doctor then has to look and say, well, it's, it's localized, we just need a surgeon, or gee, it's, it's really pretty advanced and, and there are things we can do to slow it down. And then there's, of course, there's the gray uh, area in between where it's, it's not localized, it's not through the whole body, it's, it's locally advanced and our radiation people become involved. And you, unfortunately at that point, have to involve all three of the cancer specialists. You need a, a surgeon, you need a radiation doctor, and a medical oncologist, and we all use the tools we can to, to help to treat that patient, knowing that not one of us has the solution, but by combining our efforts together that we give the, the patient the best chance of a, of a good 
outcome. I, I, I want to jump in again. I'm always jumping in. I'm sorry. So oh. if I'm hearing this right, if I've got stage one, I'm likely to see Paul Roach here, who is a surgeon. Because that's going to be the quickest, easiest thing is to go in and just cut out any tumor or anything that's in there if it's small enough and easy enough to get to. If it's stage two or three, I'm likely to see Courtney Koch, our radiation doctor, uh, because it's going to require, as you said, it was more generally, it's still localized, but it's larger and a bigger problem. And then if it's three, four, is that when we see you, Peter? Yeah, I, I, the, the, the stage two, three, I would consider as locally advanced, that the stage one is typically very localized. The chance of having fingers and spread to lymph nodes is fairly limited so that the treatment would just remove the tumor, get it out, and then you're Wait, done. Wait, you say fingers. Unfortunately, Sorry. It gets a little more complicated. Like yeah. within stage one, there's one A and one B. And so if it's stage 1A, where it's really superficial, it's caught very, very early, your gastroenterologist can just carve out the inner lining of your food pipe, of your esophagus, and you're treated successfully that way. If it's 1B, if it's just a little bit deeper, that's probably not going to work, and, and that's where people start to go for removing the esophagus, which is a really big deal. It's in your neck, it's in the center of your chest, it's in your upper abdomen. It's a, it's a big procedure stages two and three as well. Now, for example, one of the patients I saw last week, he's gonna get chemo and radiation therapy first, and then we're gonna see if the thing shrinks enough to make surgery reasonable. What do you think of that, Courtney? You mean so-called neoadjuvant ther therapy? Yes. Yeah, and... Um, Wait, what was that? I missed that. Neoadjuvant therapy. Um, therapy Sounds that's like given something before from the, matrix. the surgery's done. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> but um, I, I think that is a very reasonable approach uh, for some esophageal cancers and for other types of cancers, which we'll talk about um, in later podcasts. That approach is used because it allows shrinkage of the tumor and decrease in the likelihood of those finger-like projections that Pete is talking about or of lymph nodes being um, positive if you're able to treat the tumor and the areas at risk around it before you do any surgery. So the surgery is more um, complete and more able to get a complete resection of, of any cancers. But um, getting back to what um, Pete was saying and the question you asked, Mike, I think for most stages radiation is never given by itself unless you're doing something that you're not hoping to cure the person or it's for pain or what we call palliation. In most cases I would say radiation is going to be coupled with chemotherapy either if you're giving it before the surgery or after the surgery I would say. Well you, you know what help me out here then what's because again no knowledge whatsoever chemotherapy obviously chemochemicals but I always kind of thought chemotherapy and radiation were sort of the same thing. Help me out. What am I, what am I getting wrong about that? So with respect to the radiation treatments, um, they're x-rays. They come from a machine, like a regular x-ray machine that you would use to take an x-ray of a broken bone or a lung. It's controlled with an on and off switch in these high energy 
beam, this high energy beam comes out of the machine, we direct it to one part of the body. So it's very localized, very localized in most situations. Um, and it's divided into days of treatment um, over a series of weeks, typically. So it's localized treatment coming from machine in the form of x-rays. Uh, the side effect profile is different. And um, I'll leave Pete to talk about chemotherapy, which is, of course, a more general treatment to your whole body. Huh, okay. Yeah, so chemotherapy is a, a medicine that basically destroys cancer cells whether it's in a, a localized field where it started or elsewhere in the body, the idea is that we're selectively poisoning the cancer. And uh, that obviously um, is a good thing. The, the problem with chemotherapy is obviously the side effects and the fact that in many cases it doesn't work as well as we'd like it, uh, that it doesn't kill every last cell. It shrinks it. it stuns it, it puts it to sleep, but it, it doesn't kill it. So that's why we need to use everything we can to, to fight the cancer. Uh, let me, if you don't mind, I just want to back up and talk about cancer and what actually has happened. We've talked about stage and, 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 and uh, where it started, but the, the story of the cancer is it starts, there's usually some sort of irritation in the body, inflammation that occurs. Um, in some sort of, of esophageal cancers, it can be acid reflux year after year. The redness uh, from the, the burn um, causes inflammation, and inflammation causes mutation, and that can lead to cancer, and that's a very common reason for uh, esophageal adenocarcinoma, which is kind of the most common subset of esophageal cancer. Another subset of, uh, of esophageal cancer is squamous cell, and it's the irritant that leads to this evolution or change to cancer is often smoking or tobacco. But in any case, we wind up with a cancer cell, and it may be only one cell, but that cell becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, and, and reproduces uncontrollably. And over time, it finally presents itself and whether that, when it shows itself, it's simply a lump in the esophagus and can be resected, or whether it's had the ability to develop fingers and spread elsewhere. That's really what we're talking about for stage, where exactly in its development it is. Um, clearly, if it's low, uh, fairly early, you know, our outcomes are a lot better. However, if it festers, it develops fingers, and eventually those fingers and uh, develop and, and break off and, and spread metastasize, then it's a totally different entity and be, it becomes much harder to, to deal with. And so when we address the cancer, we talk about stage, but we also have to kind of understand what's actually going on. And then we can better pinpoint exactly what needs to be done and what are available tools to do that um it, it kind of sounds like if i have based on what you're talking about where there's an irritant that, and it's constantly sort of happening so if i'm a regular schmo and i have a lot of acid reflux or i am eating a lot of tums uh, or rolades or if i have a, a like a tickle or a scratch that won't go away this is the type of thing that i should actually 
not just ignore? Like what are some of the other things maybe that would get me into the, the hospital after I've listened to this podcast, I'm gonna say, oh, the doctors have told me I should pay attention to these small problems before they become big. So help me out, what are those things? Oh, I like that, I like that a lot. I think the, for esophagus or for esophageal carcinoma, cancer, the, the two subtypes are the one that sort of happens as a consequence of mostly drinking and smoking in the, in the Western culture. That's the squamous cell type. And the other one is the one that happens as a result of acid reflux. That's the adenocarcinoma type. That, that one happens lower in the esophagus, the other one happens typically higher. It used to be that the drinking and smoking one was the most common, but now the acid reflux one is the most common. Um, so I think if we're speaking to a, a Western audience, uh, you know, I think what you're talking about, if you're having a lot of reflux and it's going on for a while, you definitely should reach out to your doctor because not only can you get your reflux symptoms improved by taking care of steps one, two, and three, let's say, but uh, there's also always a low chance. It's not a common cancer. There's a low chance that you're gonna sort of lower the risk of developing this thing in the long run. Okay, but it, it will present itself as, as <laughs> I, I feel like I've got acid indigestion, or yes. I feel like I've got a tickle in the back of my throat, never goes away. I think, I think that's pretty fair. It can be tricky. Uh, one of the things about cancer is it can sneak up. But a lot of times, I'll jump into this right now, the, the lesson of the day with esophageal cancer. So the next section is that it's, it's currently the eighth most common cancer worldwide and the sixth most deadly. It's a, it's a, it's a cancer that moves pretty quickly and it's in the center of your body, in the center of your chest. It's most often diagnosed at a more advanced disease stage. So many times when you do finally get around to diagnosing it, and I think like you're describing, people live with symptoms for a long, long time without yeah. knowing. It might be kind of late. Not always, but it happens a lot. There's a variety of types, but there's two major ones, the adeno, and the squamous cell, we've already talked about those. And these are very distinct, both in how they happen and, and where they're located in the food pipe, in the esophagus, whether down low by the stomach or up higher in your chest. Adeno is usually the lower third, and there's this precondition called Barrett's esophagus, uh, which is a consequence of chronic reflux. These are the main risk factors associated with it. So if your doctor says, oh, you have Barrett's, first of all, that doesn't at all mean, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get this cancer. There's different subtypes of Barrett's, there's short segment and long segment, there's a variety of different things. So not to panic, but definitely to manage it. Um, but it, it's associated with a much higher risk overall of, of cancer. And then, with squamous cell, it's this chronic irritation caused by tobacco smoke and heavy alcohol consumption. Now, they're, like Courtney had mentioned earlier, those people are also gonna have 
problems up higher in their throat and in their their lungs as well. So if a person is a chronic smoker or drinker, that they definitely need to be in touch with their primary care doctor more often and, and quicker over all these issues. Which one, which, which one is going to more likely be how we started the show, which was, I can't swallow? Oh, either one. Either one. Oh, okay. And that's an excellent question, Mike, because I think that's another presenting symptom. In fact, it's a very common presenting symptom. Patients that have progressive difficulty swallowing, that they find that, you know, they're, they're trying to swallow food and it's, <coughs> I mean, it's just not going down right. So that, I think, would be a very worrisome symptom that would uh, prompt someone to see a doctor would be a good take-home message um, for, for patients. I think another good take-home message is to make sure that you, you keep in very close contact with your primary care physician and you're following the guidelines for when you should have a scope. Um, there's standard guidelines for that as, as to when you should, they should actually look down, as Paul said, um, just to see what your esophagus looks like, if there's changes that are concerning. Um, as we'll discuss in future podcasts, to look down below in the anal and rectal area. So I, I would encourage um, our listeners to just um, discuss that with their primary care physician and get a clear idea as to be preventive. You know, when should I start this process of being scoped? Um, well, that's, that's interesting because, you know, I'm, once I hit 50, I'm old. Once I hit 50, the doctor said, okay, you have to have a colonoscopy. And that was paid for by my insurance, and they said, well, this is, you know, we, this is preventative. No one's ever said, go have a preventative esophageal scoping. Is that something that I should be asking for? Is that, is, does that even exist, like, you know, the way the colonoscopy? Is it every 10 years? Is, it, is that a thing? Very good question. No, it's not. Um, we can get into... Well, why not, Paul? All right. Well, in a different episode, we'll do a deep dive into screening tests. But... Um, for example, if we were in Japan, where the incidence of, of these cancers is higher and gastric cancers is higher, yes, you would get a screen. I'm oh. not from Japan, I don't know that for a fact, but that's my understanding, is that because the incidence is much higher, and they've got different ways of screening, and they tend to catch these earlier because of the screening programs, but it's not as high, it's not as common a problem here in the USA, so screening programs like routine screening everybody with the upper scope, they don't make they don't make sense here. Wait, didn't you say this was the seventh most common cancer? Worldwide. Oh, we'll, not in the US. We'll do a deep okay. dive on, on screening tests, but uh, that is a complicated subject, a very good question. Okay. We're gonna have to put a pin in that I one. will be tuning in to that future episode. All right, so now in the next section, next section, moving along is cancer questions. And this one came from my darling wife, Megan. And she said, how do you tell a patient that they've got cancer? So let's start with, uh, let's start with Courtney. I think that raises the question of, of referral. Um, when I see patients, typically they already have the diagnosis. Oh, um, yeah, of course. Of but course. I think I can maybe uh, speak... Um, about if a patient's cancer has progressed or there's, a, there's something new that comes up um, where they um, are being treated and there's not good progress at their treatment or something has recurred, I make sure it's face-to-face. -face. 
I make sure that we have reviewed the records, um, which goes without saying, very, th very thoroughly. And I also ask the patient, you know, try to work with thy nursing staff to work with the patient to make sure that there's, there's some kind of support for the patient in that face-to-face -face encounter. And then I think there's no other way but just to encourage the patient and let the patient know that despite this the setback, that um, we are experts in the field, we have a lot of tools that we can pull from, and that you know we are going to use these tools to the best of our ability to to properly stage the the the, the cancer it is right now, and then to treat it. How about you, Pete? I agree with everything that that, that, that Courtney said. What I would like to add is there's really no good way to tell someone they have cancer. Bad news, period. Bad news. We can sugarcoat it and say, you know, we got an excellent plan, we got a team, but the, the bottom line is you have cancer. And as human beings, when we hear bad news, we, we react. And are we in denial? Are we angry about it? We can go through a host of different emotions. But the long and short is that hearing the words that you have cancer hits the vast, vast majority of us like a, a ton of bricks and the people who respond and say well it's just cancer I'll deal with it those are the people that I worry about most psychologically so the word cancer just you know starts a conversation in a very awkward manner now having said that we do you, the, the, the patient who's been now diagnosed with cancer that person has become a patient and they need to have a team they need to have a doctor they need to to have a plan and I, I think once the the ball gets rolling and we learn more about it that's going to give us empower us to to be able to to treat it we need to put a name on it what sort of cancer is it we need to identify well, what's the extent what's the spread what's the stage and then from there we can identify the people that are going to be necessary to help to treat this is it going to be surgery is it going to be a specialty surgeon is it going to be to, to be radiated? Is it to get some sort of systemic therapy? And then what is the prognosis and, and all that? But you know, the bottom line is there's no good way of saying it. You can sugarcoat it all you want or have a physician who sugarcoats it, but it's still cancer. And I, I would add to that that it's part of the art of medicine is that we individualize our treatments and our approaches to patients because I think that people process trauma very differently. Different people process trauma very differently. So one of the things that we all do in our offices is we do get an idea of what type of patient take patient this is. And um, I think that patients, even though they're presented with a very traumatic situation around the diagnosis, which is, as you know, Pete says, it's, it's, it's bad enough as it is, but to, to give them a plan to move forward, I think is very reassuring for patients also. I find as a surgeon, I have two categories. One is when the patients kind of are expecting it. You know, they've already been referred and, and they kind of know where we're headed. And then the other is when it's just a complete surprise. Like last week, I had a patient in the ER this happens fairly regularly where, you know, they came in with a, a new condition 
and within a few minutes, I'm having to tell them this this is probably cancer, uh, and so that's a, an enormous shocker. But I agree with everything you guys are talking about. I uh, I don't know if there's a best way. I tend to bring it up pretty quickly because the patients, if, if they see a dancing around the subject, it only makes it harder for them. So it's better just to come out with it, I think. And then you can start talking about it. And and Courtney, I think you said to, the key is to have a good plan so that they know, all right, we're in a tight spot here, but we've got this plan. And like Pete said, sort of bring to mind all the different things that we can bring to bear here in the 21st century in Western cultures with respect to the five different types of uh, medical treatments and the radiation treatment and the surgical treatments. I think that's uh, my approach typically is to try to make it a quick and then start listening to their questions. Because the other thing that I also warn everybody is like you're starting a college course on cancer now because you're going to have over the next few months a million new concepts and terms and and all these things that you'll be learning and that was actually part of the genesis of this podcast is there's just so much to teach you can't get it done in a clinic visit you know what i want to uh interject yes again. sir my question is you guys are conscientious medical professionals what if for some reason for whatever reason uh, my doctor in a big hurry comes in just says yeah it's cancer and he doesn't he, she, they, they do not present me with a plan. And I'm sitting there in kind of shock. How do I address that? How do I get a plan? How do I, if, if, my, if my doctor isn't forthcoming with that information, what do you suggest that I do in order to make that happen? If you don't have a relationship with your primary care or the, the bomb was dropped and you feel like you're totally stranded there, you just need to start asking for help. And I think that's really critical when you have cancer that you ask for help. But you know, I think- um, And uh, you're not gonna be able to uh, figure out- I think Mike's point is really important. There's a big issue in, certainly in the cancer world and all the others, but in disparities in outcomes with cancer care because, you know, there's a large segment of the population that really doesn't have access to someone on their, you know, I can call list who might be able to give them good advice. So I think that, uh, I think that that question is really important for the, the system as a whole because it works well for those who, for whom it works well, but there's a lot of people who are kind of left out and, and when their doctor isn't knowledgeable enough or they're not involved enough or they don't have enough time or whatever and they say all right you've got cancer and you know we can't do anything about it how does a person know that really there isn't anything that can be done and uh, I don't have an answer for that yet uh, but that's an interesting problem I'd love to say there's always going to be someone you can call but I think the truth is, sometimes you have to, I don't know, like like in Chicago, I think we're gonna start 
working on that problem more than we have been, trying to get cancer care out into the full community. Because I think there's a fair number of people who've been kind of left out of the best cancer treatment. I don't know if you, if you guys, if I'm making sense or if I'm uh, just sort of talking around it. No, I, I mean, you're, you're basically saying that there are communities that they, the healthcare system doesn't fully uh, serve uh, for either it's because of insurance, it's because of access to facilities, or it's because of, you know, whatever. Uh, how did, you know, and, and if they are being served at all, it may be overcrowded and the doctors may be busy. And that's kind of where my brain was when I was like, you know, what, what if you, you just kind of get breezed in? It's like, well, you have cancer. Uh, we'll, we'll make an appointment for you for two weeks from now. And that's all they tell you. So you're not giving that, that, you're not giving that plan kind of thing. So I guess, yeah, it's like, how do, I, how do I get around that if that happens to me? How do I sort of force a plan? Uh, or, you know, do I come back and say, well, I did my research or I, I listened to this great podcast <laughs> with three doctors and a graphic designer. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I found out that these are some of the things that should be happening. Like, can I can I interject myself with you very you know intimidating doctor types uh, and and feel like I can get heard? I think what we're also saying, Mike, is to um, is to use the support systems that are around you. And as um, Pete and Paul are saying, it, it, that may involve a friend, it may involve a family member, someone who is in the medical field, and. I think that sometimes when people cannot think through a situation, it helps if there's a consensus among people that they know and trust. And that may even involve going outside of that doctor's office to get a second opinion. Would I not think be that's an unreasonable the magic thing buzzword. to do to, yeah, to, to, um, to get consensus and to get a sense of, of, of comfort with which whatever you, you're being told. And I, I would think, you know, if you if you seek another medical opinion, you talk with your support system that's close to you, and they're all kind of thinking it through. And you have the time to do that. I mean, I don't think you should feel pressed as if you should make a decision right there in the doctor's office, because this is a traumatic situation. You give yourself time to think it through. I think that may be a useful way to, to address the the problem of, of, of feeling as if you're not being properly informed or guided through this process. I think that so is that kind of that, a trigger. If I feel like yeah. I'm not being informed, I should go get a second opinion. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. So the the short answer, I think, is that the medical system as a whole is arranged in in echelons, in tiers, and so you might have a. I work in a kind of a small hospital, and Peter, you work in a larger hospital, right? You're in a referral hospital. Courtney's in a hospital that's sort of intermediate between my size hospital and a and a big tertiary referral center. Yes, it's in the suburbs of Chicago. It serves a pretty large community. There are other hospitals around, but it's, um, you're right, I think it's an intermediate-sized hospital. And so if, if a person is thinking, you know, I, I just don't know, I just don't know if, if I really am incurable, or they just didn't give me any, any info. They just said I had cancer, and then they left, and, you know, they, I think the agency they can express is say, hey, can I get a second opinion? Uh, not all situations are ones which are ideal for getting one if it's some kind of emergency and there's no time, but typically there is with this. And you say, can I get a second opinion? And typically you wanna go up a level. 
So if you're at a hospital that's my size, which is pretty small, you'd want to get up to a larger one where there's more subspecialists. Wouldn't you guys agree? Absolutely, Paul. Well, I think trust is the, the, the first issue that you have to have trust in your system and how can you get that? And as Courtney had said, you, you belong to a community and how can you use those the, that community? And whether you know someone who's a cancer survivor and had a, uh, an oncologist or radiation oncologist that they had, you had a minister that you can share this with, you have a neighbor who's a nurse, there, there, there generally is somewhere along the line that you'll be able to find a connection of, of someone else who's uh, had an established trust and, and kind of move forward. It, it is scary to be out there, and when you once you get diagnosed with cancer, you want the answer like right now. You want all these tests to be done, and it can be extremely frustrating that you have a scope and a, and a doctor says you got a cancer and then we're going to get you the latest greatest PET scan but then it's going to be two weeks and then until you can see the next specialist it's another week more and you're like I can't wait that long um, it, it, I, I, it, it can be frustrating but I think the, the important thing is to have a relationship and I think one of the reasons why we're all, we're all sitting here is that we belong to a cancer community and we try, try to participate to, to, for our, our, our patients' well-being. And I think uh, the vast majority of my colleagues of all different flavors who have an oncology uh, title connected to them belong to a community who, who tries to give patients the best outcomes, tries to communicate. But having said that, it, it does fail. And, uh, and that is one other low tech um, for a number one other low tech option i think mike is if you're going to give that doctor one more chance you know because everyone gets a bad day or whatever is write down all your questions for the next visit you know write it down on a piece of paper and when you show up maybe you know let the nurse know say hey i've got these questions i want to answer before i leave and uh, i have patients who do that and that's been very that's a very helpful way to make sure that they get all their questions answered. Well, it sounds like you guys are saying, um, because I know when I go to the doctor, which is, you know, I, I do my once a year checkup, and so I kind of know my primary care physician, and that's about it. And when I get referred to something, somebody else, a specialist for some reason or another, I don't know that person at all. Um, and what you're basically saying is, okay, given that situation, don't be shy yeah don't, don't keep shy. this to yourself reach out find people in your normal life your, your your uh your family your friends the minister anybody somebody down the street a neighbor find somebody who is connected or who has been through it and don't be don't keep the the, the sort of the, the cancer buzzword you know that, that <laughs> It, it, it's a secret, right? You don't want anybody to know. Uh, uh, and that's kind of a, a bad way to go. It's basically what you're saying. Get out there, let people know, get the help built up from your own network, your own community, so that you can kind of figure out the best way to get treatment for yourself rather than rely on one statement from one uh, professional. Yeah? Oh, without a doubt. That is perfect. Okay. That is perfect. All right, well, uh, next segment would be cancer news. We'll be very quick. This will just take a couple of minutes. We're just, uh, in this segment, we just pick one sort of bit of new 
thing happening out there and, and uh, associated with the subject that we're dealing with. So I picked the Keynote 811 trial, uh, came out 15 December 2021. And it's, a, uh, it's called the dual PD-1 and HER2 blockade and HER2 positive gastric cancer. And I, uh, I don't know if, guys, if you were able to look through it uh, or not. If not, I can quickly summarize it, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on this kind of new, new modality. A lot of big words for me, Paul. All right, so here, I'll talk to you about it. <laughs> First of all, the trial is interesting. It's, it's a multi-center trial. So it happens in New York, Japan, Chile, several places in China, Italy, Ukraine, Poland, Belgium, and Spain. And what they were looking at is these types of cancers that we're talking about, the adeno cancers, which happen at the base of the esophagus, and they also happen in the stomach. Classically, they would not been too well treated by chemotherapy. It doesn't make that big a difference. Then they found a subset which has this uh, receptor on it called the HER2, which is overexpressed compared to a normal set of cells and you target that, and we were expecting really big drops in, you know, really big impact from this targeting because in breast cancer, when the HER2 uh, receptor is, is prominent and you target that, it works really well. It didn't work as well in gastric cancer, probably because the HER2 isn't as dense, densely or uniformly upregulated in the, in the gastric cancer as it is in the breast cancer. So with this trial, they added another thing, this thing called the PD-1 antibody. That's called pembrolizumab. And, uh, and what it does is it, it acts also with the HER2. The two of them together, kind of like, uh, let's see, in Shake and Bake and Talladega Nights, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the two together are a lot stronger and it actually made a pretty sizable impact uh, and, a, and a big inroad in treating these gastric cancer patients. It didn't, you know, make everybody altogether better, but it was like a big breakthrough. And so I think the reason I wanted to bring it forward was to say that these combinations of medications and from different types. The PD-1 is an immune type of modulator and the HER2 is a receptor type of blockade. The combination actually is new and impactful and exciting and so when patients get these cancers which just five years ago or ten years ago were really really hard to treat, right now there might be some trial just like this one that has a big impact and can really improve things beyond what has historically been the case. Paul, how, how bad does my cancer have to be to get into a, a trial like that? Oh, well there's are, experimental trials. Are they testing trials. everybody? Yeah. So if I have it at all, yeah, right, I mean I, I can't necessarily get into it, but if I'm, who do they test? Do they test everybody from stage one to stage four or do they mostly, like is, is, is a trial like that for people who are in late stage? It, a lot of times the trials will begin with people who are in late stage and then the ones that show real benefit and promise get moved earlier and earlier and earlier in the staging. 
because if a person's got a stage one or maybe a stage two, you don't want to change the mix too well because overall they typically have very good results. So you don't want to mess with it too much unless you've got really good reason to. Um, okay. If a person's stage four, the results are oftentimes a lot harder to achieve and so you get a lot more experiment going on. Um, but if I'm at any point criteria cancer uh, diagnosis and you're talking about uh, trials and you're talking about you know experimental tests I get that but what if I what if I want to get into one how do, is there is there, a, is there a path for a patient to kind of explore that and, and try and work into that that's something I should be asking you guys at all if I'm a patient well, I think clinical trials offer a ton of, of benefit both to the individual patient and to the science and arsenal for uh, combating cancer. Typically, the, the clinical trials are often run at the university medical centers rather than community, although um, a larger and larger segment of the private practices are, are running clinical trials. It is a small group of, of patients, unfortunately, that are eligible for those. Uh, typically, when you're seeking out a place to receive your cancer therapy, it's a good idea to, to research a potential center that does offer research opportunities. Um, and having said that, that we tend to uh, use clinical trial in situations that are more dire, uh, that we have less hopeful options, and, and basic, and if we do have good existing treatments, it's it's less um, encouraged and typically less available. Well, Courtney, is that part of the plan that you were talking about that I should be uh, asking about? Is that like would you present that as you know an option in a plan, or should I be pushing for that as part of my plan? Do you think? I, I think it should be one of the one of the questions that has to be checked off, and among those questions that Paul is talking about. Are there clinical trials available for my particular um, cancer, my particular stage of cancer? And this one that Paul is talking about has very strict criteria in terms of it has to have this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, it's HER2 positivity to be eligible right. for it, right? Yeah. yeah so, Which is only 20% yeah, so of, of the overall. Right. But what yes, I mean? do think Sorry. it. What did you say? What does that mean? You, you guys were doctoring on me. Come on. <laughs> well, so dunking on me all day over here. Let's dunking say let's say there's a hundred people with esoph with adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. Hundred people. Mm -hmm. um, Twenty of them will have a, a subset. Will will have a type of adenocarcinoma that has this HER2 receptor thing on it. Does that make sense? Okay. And well, how, would, how would we even know won't. that? Are you guys testing for that? That's what we do. That's what you're so paying us to figure out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're supposed to figure out. So you'd that come out. to me and say, you have this, and it, you're in the 20% or you're in the 80%. Exactly. You're in the 20%. Okay. Right. And then, then what happens, if there's a but what happens is, worldwide, is you got people in China, Poland, you know, Chile, Worldwide, everyone's trying to figure these same problems out. And um, everyone's trying to figure these same problems out. And so we're getting enough knowledge now that these things are so linked 
uh, you know, these medical communities are linked across the globe, that we're able to get more and more of these subsets that we get tailored treatment for. So everybody's cancer might, you know, people might have different cancers than the esophageal cancer next door, but it might be very similar to the one that's in Taipei, Taiwan. And, and so you can, if you tapped into the, the most current treatment patterns for these kinds of things, you can find tailored treatments to your specific cancer type that might be better than otherwise. That's the benefit of okay. cancer centers and cancer subspecialists. Does that make sense? Instead of treating all 100 yeah. of them the same, you say, aha, these squames get treated this way, the adenos get treated that way. Then you look at the adenos and you break those into little categories. And you say, aha, the HER2 positive adenos should get treated this way. The HER2 negative should get treated that way. Then you take another look at the HER2 negatives and you look for other characteristics. Does that make sense? Okay, but this is all where, yeah, but this is where you guys are doing that. Right. And I may not even ever hear that as the patient, which then goes back to uh, what Courtney was saying is, you know, go out into the community, and, and Peter actually, go out into the community, talk to other people, find out what you can find out, because maybe another doctor had another patient who did talk about the same thing, and I can get the information that I need for my plan in a more, kind of in a, in a more diffuse way, I guess. Um, so it's always like I'm always bringing it back to basically your guys core advice seems to be get out there and and uh, network so that you can find out about these things and find out if what you have is treatable in one of them or even just the, the regular treatment might it work for you and just to just to branch out. That's basically yeah, what I think I think any effort patients put into learning about the disease, talking to people who might be able to give them good information and support and looking into things and then communicating with their their physician and nursing staff I think is really well well spent. I think that's a good effort. All right, but you have to you guys have to promise me that you're not gonna get annoyed with me for asking all my questions. You're no, not gonna that's get annoyed why you're here. Go, no, but there's a study. I heard there's a study <laughs> and you're gonna go, oh geez, this guy with his study again. You gotta promise yeah. me. Mike found the internet. <laughs> All right. All right. Dr. Well, Google should, says. I guess we should wrap this up. Thanks again for listening. And if you have a topic you would like to have us discuss or comments or feedback, please either log on to www.paulbryanroach.com. That's Brian with a Y. And click on the about and contact page or send your questions directly to letters at paulbryanroach.com.